Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Politicians from around the world are in Glasgow for the 26th United Nations Conference on Climate Change. That the disastrous impacts of climate change are increasingly evident is testimony to many things, not the least the practical shortcomings of the first 25 UN meetings. Why are we where we are? The science is clear, politics much less so. Indeed, the UN Secretary General recently declared that the emissions gap is the result of a leadership gap, insisting that they can still make this a turning point to a greener future instead of a tipping point to a climate catastrophe. But do we know what to do? Do we have the technologies in hand to decarbonize economies in ways that are compatible with how people want to live? Can we do this? Saul Griffith, Australian inventor and engineer, says the answer is emphatically yes. He has just published Electrify, an optimist playbook for our clean energy future, in which he lays out details of a plan that he argues would transform the United States from laggard to leader in the effort to change the arc of the warming climate. I want to add that Saul is a past winner of the Telberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize. Welcome, Saul. Thank you, Alan. Let's start with the big picture. How are you thinking about climate change at this point? Uh, I think about it from the bottom up. I think the history of thinking about climate change is very much the top down. So we have a problem. Let's think about sectors. Let's use sort of macroeconomics as our tools to understand it. And I don't think we've got very far with those macroeconomic tools that model sort of linear emission trajectories into the future that we've, if we coast down them, we'll wind up at some temperature. Uh, I think the world operates much more non-linearly and there's major changes in markets. And so I try to think about the transformation that needs to happen from the bottom up. And so I just finished writing a book, Electrify, which sort of details my decade journey into thinking from the bottom up. And bottom-up thinking now for me goes to what do you have to do from one household to completely decarbonize that household? How does that household translate into a community, into a state, into a nation? How does it couple to the generation, renewable generation? How does it couple to industry? And it's a it's a relief in some ways because it enables you to think about, you know, to use the US case the 280 million cars that we own, the 128 million houses, the 121 million households, the number of natural gas cooktops, the number of natural gas water heaters, the number of natural gas furnaces that are in them, and then the coal and the coal that feeds the electricity grid and the oil that drives the cars. That bottom-up look makes it far more concrete what the task ahead of us is. Um, we know that 
if you let every single machine that burns fossil fuels that's alive on the planet today live out its natural life, that will take us to about 1.8 degrees. That means if you bought a petrol or a gasoline car last year, it will burn gasoline for 20 more years statistically. If you bought a coal plant in China last year, that coal plant will burn coal for 40 more years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So thinking from the machines up now makes you understand that we need to, as quickly as possible, build the industrial capacity to make a substitution that won't burn carbon that gives that service to people um, or something that looks like the service that they're getting from their car or their water heater or their kitchen stove. And um, it gives you the, the, you know, the heroic task ahead is which country can uh, get to the scale where they can produce these machines so that as we replace them over their natural life, we replace them with clean electric machines that are powered by wind and solar. Because that's the kind of the best outcome we can plan for. We can do slightly better than 1.8 degrees if we retire coal early. And so you hear a lot of people asking for that and that's actually in fact happening in the market so that might bring us down to 1.7 or 1.6 and then the way we get to one and a half degrees is via um, negative emissions technologies uh, which I think will come up in the world but I do caution us that if you wanted to understand my perspective of how I think about COP we spent the last 25 years fiddling the accounting on things like negative emissions to make us believe we can get there. And we've now put more negative emissions into our best case scenarios than I think is physically realizable in the time required. One of the things I've liked about your thinking since we first met a couple of years ago is that you don't seem to believe in hair shirts. And many of the people in the climate solutions, I put air quotes in the word business, do believe in hair shirts, just stop now, just do it, kinds of, kinds of argument. Uh, you clearly have thought very carefully about how economies actually work, as you said, from the bottom up, top down. Um, and you've thought precisely, which is what your book's about, uh, about how to do it without burning carbon. So, simple question, how do you do it without burning carbon? How do you make this transition that clearly you believe, I believe, needs to be made sooner rather than later? So for historical reasons, we talk about economies, and actually the historical reason is worth going into. In 73, the first energy crisis struck America. That was the Arab oil embargo. America was short 15% of the primary energy input to its economy because it didn't have any oil. Um there was no Department of Energy. There was no EPA at that point. This landed on Nixon's desk. But Nixon quickly assembled a group of people that ultimately ended up becoming the seed that was the Department of Energy and the Energy Information Administration. But when they sat down around an emergency table in 73 to figure out what to do about the crisis, they had to quickly understand the economy. So they drew a, a bucket around residential, which means our homes, a bucket around commercial, which is our businesses, a bucket around industrial, which is where we make all of our stuff, and a bucket around transportation. And then they drew a fifth bucket, which is electricity that feeds all of those. And so we've had a conversation forever about those buckets. And because of the, the oil crisis was a supply side crisis of 15%, the conclusion and the recommendation of the 
the best minds at that time was, well, we solve this with efficiency. If we make all of our cars 15% more efficient and we make all of our appliances 15% more efficient, then we won't need that oil. That literally got translated into energy policy as the cafe fuel economy standards and as the energy star appliances. Um, but really the, the embargo resolved itself before we actually made ourselves 15% more efficient. However, that efficiency narrative or the hair shirt narrative uh, has persisted in um, the public imagination and the environmentalist narrative ever since. So we've been trying to fight with efficiency the, the energy crisis problem. With climate, it's not an energy crisis, it's an emissions crisis. So what you really want to do is instead of looking for that top-down sectoral solution, think from the bottom up about every single thing that we do and how do you do it cleanly and without carbon and electrically. And, and the good news is that for nearly everything in the economy, there is now an answer. And it requires redrawing the boundaries of the economy from those old commercial residential things to new boundaries. And I've found it very useful to talk in terms of political units and the fundamental political unit is the household. So what happens in your household? You heat your water, you heat your your space, you drive on average in the US 1.88 cars per household. Um, then you use electricity for most other things. You use some natural gas for the kitchen and some natural gas. There's still 19 million gas-fired clothes dryers in the US. So we now have a substitution for every single one of those things that is acceptable to people. So we have fantastic electric induction stoves. We have heat pump water heaters that are three times more efficient. We have heat pumps for space heating that are three times more efficient. The induction stove is about twice as efficient as natural gas. And then we have electric vehicles, which use one third of the energy to go the same mile as a gasoline equivalent. So all of those machines are better. Um, and in fact, if you take that sort of ground up efficiency and you apply it to every component of the American economy, you find out that we only need half as much energy in the future as we do today because these electrical machines are so much more efficient than the fossil fuel machines that they replace. Now, some people might think, well, isn't there some other solution apart from electrification? And the answer is, well, not really. Um, the other options would be using biofuels, but to power all of humanity, you'd have to burn one quarter of everything that grows every year. So that's not going to happen. You might use a little bit of biofuels for air travel, but you won't use it for much more than that then there will be advocates for, especially fossil, loud fossil fuel advocates, for doing carbon sequestration of traditional fossil fuels. That can work on the generation side, but that doesn't work inside your house. You can't really sequester the, you know, if, if the 121 million homes are burning a little bit of natural gas in their kitchen, in their basement, and in their living room um, to power their house, those emissions are so diffuse that you can't, economically capture them. So that's not going to work. So that's why you arrive at electrification. And then when you go through the thought experiment of what happens when you electrify everything, you find out you only need half as much energy. And that's only half as much energy without changing the size of the homes, without changing the size of the cars, without changing the fabric of everyday life. So, so that, that, is, that is the demand side, if you will. That is the demand side. We've always thought about the supply side. Traditionally, 
you know, energy policy and climate policy has been a supply side conversation. And I'm a loud proponent that we have to make it a demand side conversation because the demand side is where human beings live. The supply side is where giant machines live. It's coal plants and uh, petrol, you know, gasoline, petroleum refineries. Um, on the demand side is all the things that we like to do as humans. And so it engages people in the conversation and it puts in perspective what needs to happen. And then it shows you that there's a lot more solutions than you think. And so if you re reimagine the emissions problem and you recategorized it, 42% of emissions in the US are decided around the kitchen tables of our 121 million households. So that's what fuels your car, what powers your, what, where you get your electricity from, and what you use to cook and what you use to heat your water and your space. If you added small businesses and the commercial sector, it's very similar loads. It's buildings and it's small vehicles, and they're another 20, 25%. So there's 65% of our emissions right there. Um, with machines that we know already exist and that we can get out there. Um, and then you say, well, what about the other 35%? Well, about 10% of them are agriculture. And then some of it is hard to decarbonize industry. That's steel and cement is what people mostly mean when they say hard to decarbonize industry. And then the rest of the industrial loads actually are mostly amenable to electrification also. Um, and so that's how you, you, you get at those pieces of the problem. So if you were saying, what do we have a technology that you can go and buy off a shelf today that is a satisfactory substitute for what you already have, that addresses 65 to 75% of our emissions. And we should just be doing that right away. And it's really, in my view, a race for which country or which state can prove that that works for them first to show an example to the rest of the world. Um, unfortunately, there's not one country or one state where this is happening. But I can intone in a magical place where it is happening. So if you could take Norwegian vehicle policy, so they're going to have 100% electric vehicle sales by 2025, and you had Australian rooftop solar policy, which means that they've found their way to regulate and do the permitting and eliminate all of the soft costs so that solar on your roof is is the cheapest electricity that anyone in the Western world gets is rooftop solar in Australia. And then if you could deploy uh, heat pumps for water heat and space heat, as well as that is done in South Korea or Japan, then you have the magical recipe. California... Let me undermine a couple of things. One, you've just more or less said that waiting for carbon sequestration at scale or waiting for green hydrogen is waiting for Godot. I think both of these things are worth painting a little bit more of the reasoning about so that I, I think these two ideas are pervading the climate conversation globally. They're in the public conversation and roughly no one knows what they mean. Let's talk about them both quickly. So let's talk about um, yep. carbon sequestration, negative emissions, and this idea of net zero 2050. Um, starting in the early 2000s, it was 
already obvious that we probably had to have some negative emissions. And so some people thought about how you would grow biological matter and then you would do carbon sequestration on top. And that was called BECS, bioenergy with um, with carbon sequestration. And you can make that work out in your mind. So you take huge amounts of land, you grow something, you burn it every year and you capture that carbon and you sink it into the ground and that actually is a negative emission. Um, the submodelers so got um, addicted to putting in negative emissions in the IPCC modeling, and then it was realized by fossil fuel companies that this was worth supporting because it enabled the idea of negative emissions, which was also the idea that would allow them to keep selling their noxious products into the future. And so we kept modeling more and more and more negative emission technologies into the climate models until now... The two best case scenarios presented by the IPCC have more than 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide going into the ground every year after about 2050 or 2060, um, 10, 10 gigatons every year. So let's put that 10 gigatons in perspective. If you took all of the oil, all of the coal and all of the natural gas that we made every year that we pull out of the ground, it weighs about 10 gigatons. It then oxidizes, so it weighs four times, three to four times as much after it's oxidized, which is why there's 30 to 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions. But nevertheless, the implication of trying to put the idea that we're going to put 10, we're going to build an industry that's bigger than all fossil fuel industries combined by 2050, and we're going to have that industry for a century afterwards pump that much stuff back into the ground belies the imagination. For one thing, by around 2050, there'll be practically no one with positive emissions left with which to tax to pay for these negative emissions. So who's going to pay for this is like one question you should have. The other question you should have, is there really, um, is it really a good idea to bet the future of our species on building the largest industry that ever existed to do something that we don't really know how to do yet? But it does allow people to not do today what someday somebody maybe perhaps will do tomorrow. Absolutely. So the chief strategy of the fossil fuel industry is now delay. They know they can't win the moral argument over the long term, but they can delay the action required. And they have already successfully delayed the action required by enabling us to model into our best case scenario this. If we hadn't modeled in that amount of negative emissions, then we would be talking about more cuts sooner um, to our emissions. So they've already, you know, the, the the fossil fuel lobby has already succeeded in making us um, believe an unreal amount of this carbon emissions. The National Academy of Sciences did a study in 2017 that said you could do about one gigaton a year in the US and about 10 gigatons a year globally, but it would come at the expense of competing with food and other land uses because it would take up so much land area and take so much effort to create that many negative emissions. So it, the, the, the National Academy of Science of the US, United States doesn't believe that it's physically or economically realizable to do the amount of negative emissions that is modeled into the IPCC plan. 
let's let's also just briefly touch on hydrogen. So I just I think it is important. So we should be more cautious. We're probably over we're over what I think would be a sensible amount of negative emissions by a factor of five in what we're planning for. What that means is more action sooner on mitigation instead of negative emissions later this century. So then the second idea that you brought up that is dominant is the use of hydrogen. Let's talk very frankly about hydrogen. Hydrogen is actually an electrification strategy because the only clean hydrogen is hydrogen that starts with green electricity produced with wind or solar or hydroelectricity. But so hydrogen is a battery for an electric world. The problem is it's not a very good battery. When you create hydrogen from electrolysis in a realizable machine that you can build, it's about 70% efficient. You then, because hydrogen is a diffuse gas, you have to compress that gas and it takes about 15% of the energy in the gas to compress it. So you lose another 15%. Then to get it back into electrons to use it again or to burn it to create heat, you only get about 50 or 60% of the energy content out. All told, you only get about one third of the energy back that you started with. Whereas if you just take electricity and put it in a battery, you get 90 and take it back out again, you get 95% of it back. So the implication is if we want to do a, a large portion of the world's energy supply with hydrogen is that we need to build two to three times as many wind turbines, two to three times as many solar cells. This idea is championed by the fossil fuel companies because all of the world's hydrogen today is made from natural gas as a byproduct. So if they continue to make us think that hydrogen is going to be the answer, they can continue to believe that they're going to save the day because they know how to make hydrogen, except they make dirty hydrogen, not green hydrogen. And um, so that's, you know, I think that lobbying group is having a undue effect on the global conversation. The IEA was celebrated a few months ago for coming out with a, a two degree scenario and what it would look like, but they assumed that 50% of all of the world's electricity in the, in 20 years would be used to make hydrogen. That's also unrealistic. Um, so given that you're going to run out of places to put windmills and solar cells, I think we're going to, the econo pure economics is going to just say less hydrogen, not more. There will be some, it will be useful in some industries, niches like steel, niches like ammonia for fertilizer, but it's not going to be the lingua franca of the future energy supply. It will be a, a bit player. The, the main player will be electricity. So in terms of generating the electricity that you will need to power this electrify everything strategy, which is a great bumper sticker, by the way, yeah. <laughs> what is the what is the energy mix you imagine and what is the infrastructure needed? And then finally, how do we pay for it? So um, probably five or 10 percent of the world's future supply will be hydrogen created from electricity because we will actually create an oversupply of electricity in the summer because we'll design our energy systems for the part of the year where we have most of the load, which is winter which means we'll have extra solar and extra wind in the, in, the, in the summertime. And so that will probably be what we use to create the hydrogen that we use to support this industry. So there will be you know, 5 or 10% hydrogen. So how do you make the other 90% of our energy? Well, the overwhelming majority will come from wind and solar. 
um, countries with population densities like Australia, Canada, the US could do it nearly completely on wind and solar and hydroelectricity alone. Uh, if you're in a high population density country in Southeast Asia, or if you're in a um, dark, cold place in Northern Europe, you probably are going to be required to add some nuclear energy to that mix to make sure that you have a good supply all year around. Um, so if I was, you know, picking, I'd say, you know, five to 10% of the world's electricity supply will continue to be hydroelectricity. We'll do another five to 10% with nuclear power and you could split the balance 50-50 with um, wind and solar and you'd be roughly right. Um, and then there'll be a little bit of biofuels for a couple of things like shipping and aviation and there'll be a little bit of hydrogen for things like steel and ammonia and for some seasonal storage. The obvious question is transition, and we are already witnessing our first transition bump, uh, the, the current escalation of prices. Whether the transition is engineered or accidental is a different issue. Um, but the This will be blamed. This transition bump is not the fault of renewables or the transition. It's the fault of a larger supply chain, COVID, other issues, but it will be, it will be blamed upon renewables. It is. I've had people tell me that Europe had a 15% shortfall in wind this year, and ergo, that's why you have a problem. But put that excuse aside, that transitions, economists are notorious for assuming away transitions, and clearly transition is an issue. Um, and this is a multidimensional transition. How do you yeah, I think, I think you said something very interesting that just there, the IPCC process starts with scientists who do the climate science and they study the clouds and the oceans and they build a model and then tell you this is what happens to the world's environment with changing carbon dioxide. The next step in the IPCC process traditionally has gone to economists and economists have always then modelled basically linear reactions to the energy supply because economists, I think, the, the, you know, maybe the rude thing to say is they can't model anything more complicated than a straight line. And so we never really had as a voice in the conversation about the, what the transition looks like, you know, engineers and people who design infrastructure and people who think about nonlinear transitions as you go through certain points. Let's think about one of the nonlinear transitions we're going to go through. A whole lot of homes in the world are heated with natural gas. You start electrifying all of that home heat and with every electrical house you add to um, that network, you take one house off gas, but you still have to maintain the same network of natural gas pipelines. So incrementally, the natural gas gets more expensive for every person who remains on natural gas. How do you plan a transition so that when you're halfway through that, um, the economics of natural gas doesn't collapse overnight? and you can't quickly enough get the electrification of the last 50% of the houses on the gas line. You know, another analogy will be how do you, as you get to 50% electric cars on the road, you're going to ruin the economics of an awful lot of gas stations. Um, and so then the gas stations become more scarce, and then eventually you're in a situation when maybe there's not enough gas stations to support the remaining 20% of vehicles. So what what happens 
at, at these transitions. So just sort of by necessity, the, the, the transition is going to be a little bit nonlinear. And then honestly, the big nonlinearity as soon as you get is as soon as you get to economic parity with the incumbent. So this is what's being seen in Australia. And it's absolutely remarkable. The rooftop solar is so cheap that it's about five or six cents a kilowatt hour. In the next couple of years, batteries will only cost five to 10 cents per kilowatt hour. And so your solar plus a battery will be cheaper than the electricity grid can deliver electricity in every zip code in Australia. Um, that will eventually happen in the US and largely throughout the world. So you now see in some locations in Australia, 50% of homes have solar on their roof, so many that the grid can't really manage the what happens at noon when all of those solar cells on the roofs are trying to feed electricity back into the grid because the grid wasn't designed as a two-way street that was meant to take that much electricity back. And that's a problem until there's enough batteries to su support it. So everywhere you look through the physical infrastructure of this transition, there's going to be non-linear events um, where the economics flip and all of a sudden everyone buys solar on their roof or where, you know, the, as you try to transition off a of fossil fuel, it creates sort of economic troubles and labor troubles right there. So um, I'm not sure what the grand point is other than you can't really model these things as straight lines. And actually, I think there's a little bit of room for optimism here because all of the predictions of the IPCC of what outcome we get are based on roughly linear transitions, but it's going to be non-linear. As soon as electric vehicles are cheaper in the showroom in the US than gasoline vehicles, which is predicted by Bloomberg to be 2025-2026, the, the transition will change enormously in the US. So, What do climate change and jazz greats John Patitucci, Terry Lynn Carrington, and Joe Lovano have in common? Telberg's Jazz for the Planet. Listen and watch them perform new music about the climate and about climate action at jazzfortheplanet.org. So I guess the question, and maybe the $64,000 unanswerable question, all of this requires uh, a menu of incentives and mandates. It requires uh, some effective thinking about those transitions. It requires uh, agility to cope with the nonlinearity that you've just described. And some of it will be the magic of the marketplace, your point that you've just made about what happens when electric vehicles actually get cheap. Uh, but some of it requires smart government. And that does seem to be a bit of an oxymoron in many, if not most places. So I go back full circle to the title of your book. You are a self-described optimist. Uh, you're optimistic, obviously, about the analysis. You're optimistic about what has already... I, before you go too far with the word optimist, I will tell you, I fought with my editor over the subtitle. Ah, okay. She, she said, I think it needs to say optimist. And I think history turns out it is correct. The world is looking for optimism. And this was the closest book 
to be able to say that there's there is a pathway here. So I've now am wearing the crown of chief climate optimist, which I wear uncomfortably, and it's a thorny crown for sure. Um, I can be optimistic that there are pathways. I can point you at the optimistic pieces out there, but I believe where you're going with this question and where this always goes is it's hard to be optimistic about politics at this point. And I absolutely agree. And I actually think what's enormously underappreciated, especially in the energy market, is the cost of regulation for nearly every energy source that we use is extremely high. Um, the regulations we have around health and safety and around electric, you know, how electrical circuits are installed in your home, the, the environmental regulations we have around oil and gas, um, the road taxes we have for gasoline in many countries of the world, the building codes that we have have big impacts on how much, how cheap solar can be in your location. Um, we've basically written regulations at the micro level, meaning at household, city and state levels all over the world, we wrote those regulations for 120 or 130 years in favor of fossil fuels, because that's what we knew how to do. And if we're going to make this transition cost less, uh, a huge amount of the heavy lift is on regulations. That's in the optimist side, which is like, you could make this future transition cheaper and easier by cleaning up our regulatory environment. And I actually founded an organization called Rewiring America last year, and it's precisely what we're doing. We're engaging with Washington and we're engaging at state level and we're engaging with other activist groups to rewrite regulations to make this transition better. But that's only half of the regulatory governance question that I think you might have asked. The other half is, and, and you, you mentioned um, mandates, well, there's, there is mandating, like there are places like the city of Berkeley that has mandated no natural gas in new homes. California is going to adopt that. So you're not allowed to install natural gas in newly built homes. So there is a place for those mandates. Mandates are hard fought. Um, but the if you wanted to know what I really worry about is the economics looks like it's going to be in for most Western countries in about 2025. And what I mean by the economics for the small business or the home that's making decisions about how to heat their home and how to do their mobility, how to get transported around, the electric solutions will be economic. But by very definition, they're expensive up front and they require good credit. And that good credit is really only available to the top 50% of households in the US, for example. Just if you're roughly dividing... So I think the other big regulatory governance issue is comes from this question. You don't, or this statement, you don't solve climate, you can't half solve climate change. You don't solve climate change if only the 50% of the wealthiest households can afford the transition. And in fact, if you're looking for a way to create civil war and unrest, you make it look like these smug wealthy people are doing a great job and they can afford the future, but the other half can't afford the future. So I actually think the very, very, very hard regulatory governance question is how do you make this a fair transition, an equitable transition, so that all of those, all of the lower 50% of income of households can afford uh, 
these sort of technological wonders that allow us to live carbon free? Well, you define it. The answer to the question is, in a sense, clear. You've just given it. You define it exactly as you just did. You can't have a 50 percent solution because that devalues that 50 percent pretty fast. Yes. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much. I think this is something that this is this is a conversation that people need to hear because we are way too caught up on waiting for the technological Hail Mary pass, waiting for geoengineering, waiting for some mystical solution. And the moral of your story is stop waiting, start doing. Uh I certainly wouldn't bet the future of my household on winning the lottery. I don't think many people would. I don't think people would bet their children's health or education um, on something they didn't know was very, very high likelihood. And so I think it's, it's discouraging that we are waiting for these miracles. And I think they're, you know, miracles are exciting and miracles get press. And, you know, we, we have the, the moonshot, dialogue of of silicon valley is pervasive and i think we we need to just say well actually let's focus on the things that we know how to do right now it's 80 you know like i said in the beginning 60 75 percent of the problem is things that we have control of over as individuals with technologies that already exist and most of the things that we talk about as hard are going to succumb to the you know, just the grinding good engineering work of the next decade. We will make steel without hydrogen. There's already pilot plant without uh, coal. There's already pilot plants in Europe and there's um, pilot processes in North America to make steel without any emissions. Same with, we can figure out how to make ammonia. So I think we actually can squint and see the answer for close to 95% of emissions from where we are and we should just be focusing our work on doing it and deployment and on the bigger and harder question in my mind, which is how do we finance this? How do we change the tools of banking so that everyone can afford to come along? And that is doable, but it's also another conversation. So thank you very much. Yes. Paul. Um, <laughs> and, and indeed, I can think of, oh, a few hundred people that desperately need to read this book yesterday. So thanks a lot. Thanks for the book. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.